The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Be tough. Be sweet. No one likes us smarty pants. Don't be such a sissy. Handle it like a man. You should go on a diet. Play the field. Be sexy, but not too sexy. Show him who's boss. You're a princess. You make the money. Let him take care of you. Pick yourself up. Know your place. Keep your mouth shut. The world tells us who we're supposed to be, but it keeps changing its mind. Throughout time, throughout cultures, we can't decide what makes a man a man and what makes a woman a woman. The message, the plan, it keeps changing. But what if there was something else? What if there was something better? Something that existed since the beginning. Something untouched by time. Something true and perfect. Imago Day. For the last 10 weeks, we have journeyed through uh, this concept of the image of God. Somebody just went walking by me there. Uh, there we go. Uh, and what we have said over and over, week after week, is that the crowning achievement of the creation story is man made in God's image. And we've seen that uh, when God did that, all mankind created his image. As a result of that, we respect all life, life in the womb, life uh, out of the womb, the end of life. And we respect all people, regardless of gender, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic, or cultural backgrounds, except for Aggies and Longhorns, we have said (laughs) week after week. Uh, So we're creating the image of God, but something happened. We fell. And when we fell, we've used these two pots that you see on the stage week after week. They'll go away after this week. We're going to make a segue into a, a series we're calling Final Scenes the end of, uh, from the end of Mark's Gospel. But uh, we said when we were creating the image of God, we were perfect, but then through the fall of Adam and Eve, we were shattered. We were shattered, but not destroyed. So these pots represent my life, and these pots represent your life. So uh, the image of God in us was shattered, but it wasn't destroyed. And therefore, through Christ, all things can be restored, and we did not have to remain a mess. So we've looked at things like manhood shattered, manhood restored, womanhood shattered, womanhood restored. We looked at singleness. We looked at sexuality. We looked at marriage shattered, marriage restored. Last week, Dave Tate did a great job looking at the family shattered. And this week, we look at the family restored. Imago Day, specifically as it relates to the family being restored. Before I start there, though, let me tell you thanks. Thanks for the many expressions of love, cards, meals, everything we've received this week uh, after the home going of my mom who went to be with the Savior last Thursday, and we did a service here on Monday. Um, I had a dear, sweet, godly mom who loved us well, and we loved her. So thank you for your continued prayers. We appreciate that. And uh, to God be the glory. We're going to talk about that this morning. So let's pray together, then we'll look at the family restored. Father, we're grateful for every day of life you give us, and we pray we'll live it to the max for Jesus. And as we look at our families, Father, we recognize some of our families are tattered and shredded. Some of our families are in the midst of uh, being broken. Some of our families, we never dreamed we could live the way we're living to your glory, and we're grateful for it. And a lot of us are somewhere in between those two extremes. So, Father, would you take my thoughts, and especially your word, and use them to your glory on this day, in Christ's name, amen. Psalm 128. If you have your Bibles or your apps, we're going to start with some other verses, but the ones I won't have on the screen begin in Psalm 128. So your Bibles or your apps, Psalm 128, will get there eventually uh, in the first point. 
Uh, if you look up on the screen, maybe this will whet your appetite for a little dessert after lunch today. Someone has said, families are like fudge, mostly sweet, but filled with a few nuts. Can I get amen out of that? I mean, really. I mean, my family, your family, mostly sweet, but we all have a few nuts in it. Somebody else said, shake any family tree, and a few nuts always fall out. And uh, that's really true. George Burns, a comedian, said this, happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family, especially if they live in another city. George Burns. Uh, A man paid a researcher $500 to dig up information on his ancestors, and he paid $5,000 to keep quiet. Their background. There is one famous or infamous DeSalvo in the world. His name was Albert, Uncle Albert, we call him. Who knows who Uncle Albert DeSalvo was? Few of you do. Uncle Albert was this guy. He was the Boston Strangler. Albert DeSalvo. I asked my dad, I don't think we're related. He came through Boston. We came through New Orleans. If he was, we wouldn't claim him anyway. But uh, raped and murdered 13 women, spent his life, and died in prison, actually. So uh, every family uh, has, well, I hope not every family has somebody like him, hopefully, but uh, there are all kinds of issues. I posted on Facebook on Friday. How many of you responded to that? I had over 350 responses to a Facebook post. My question was this. I'm working on Sunday sermon. This is Friday morning. Working on Sunday sermon. What is the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word family? First word that comes to your mind when you hear the word family. Okay, you got it in your minds? What is it? Scream at me. There you go. I heard them all. Couldn't see any of you guys, but I heard everything you said, okay? I mean, I, we had over 350 responses to that, and uh, oh, before I'll come back to that one. Uh, here are the different responses that we had. Love was a number. I should have done family feud. The number one answer for over 150 of you, ding, 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 was love. Over 150 people, first word comes to their mind. After that were all these other words. The number two most uh, popular answer was blessed. Number three was thankful, grateful, something like that. Number four, I'll just categorize as a hot mess. How's that? Uh, It's words like uh, dysfunctional, complicated, strife. Somebody said war. Somebody said vodka. Somebody said drama. Um, One of my family members put food. We're all fat, so that's not uh, unusual, but... What comes to your mind when you think of family? You see, the family, I I thought of starting this a whole different way. There's a whole, there's a Snoopy cartoon that says, so you went to a family reunion, didn't enjoy it. Well, so what? Don't feel guilty about it. Just because you're related to people doesn't mean you have to like them. There are a lot of families that resemble that. A lot of families. I, I thought of starting with just putting a bunch of statistics up there and saying the family's in trouble and here's why, but I don't have to do that. You know the family unit's in trouble in our country. You know, it's in trouble in our world. The question is, what was God's design for the family, and how do we get back to that design? What was God's divine design, and how can it be restored? The family restored, the Imago Dei and the family. How do we restore? Well, I believe God's design for the family was generational faithfulness. God's design for the family was generational faithfulness. We're going to look at some scriptures, and I hope to prove that point to you. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we have what's commonly called the great Shema, the Shema. I'm going to pop it up in a second. Let me tell you why it's called that. In the Hebrew language, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for hear, H-E-A-R, is Shema. And so when you read Hebrews chapter 6, which is the foundational stone of all of Israel's history and their spiritual life, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. Let's stop right there. 
You've heard Jesus do that. Jesus asked by the rich young ruler, what is the greatest commandment? He said this right here, the great Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. So when Jesus was asked, what is the number one commandment that we need to hear? It's love. We're not, I'm not going to give you six points on how to be a better mom or dad or seven points on how to restore your family. I'm going to tell you the foundation to everything we're talking about is grace and love extended to us by God. When we love him, we are doing, we're restoring the family. That the family is restored, not, not, the first step is not with one another. The first step is this way. It's with him. It's on the vertical, not the horizontal. We want to fix the horizontal, but the first thing we have to do is deal with the vertical. We have to deal with our love for God. And so in, the, in Israel's history, it says, if you want to know the foundation of how generational faithfulness, and I think it's about generational faithfulness, I'll show it to you. It starts with loving God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. And these words I command you today shall be in your heart. So the words are commanded to you, the word of God, you're to have on your heart. And then he goes on and he says, uh, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Let's stop right there. Whose responsibility is it to teach the children? It's not the Sunday school teacher. It's not the youth pastor. It's not the youth leaders. It's not the singles pastor, uh, the college pastor. It, it, we all share that responsibility, but primarily that responsibility is given to you as a parent. You're saying, Pastor Gray, don't lay anything else on me. I mean, our family's so busy right now. I mean, I go to work, they go to school, we go to work, they go to school, we all rendezvous at home, and, and, and it's just, it, it's a marathon. We're, we're, we're trying to get to practices, baseball, or soccer, or, or, or gymnastics, or dance, or whatever it is your kids do, and I'm chunking Chick-fil-A nuggets of them in the back seat, that's our dinner time together. I mean, how in the world you expect us to do that? Well, there are a number of ways you can do it. One of the things you can do is uh, when, when you're chunking those nuggets in the back, have them turn off the electronic Ritalin. You put down your phone, don't talk to people, and talk to them about what God has done in your life that day. I mean, it's pretty simple to do that. Have a meal together as a family once in a while. There's a novel idea. I mean, there are opportunities there if we take them. We're, we're no longer an agrarian society. He said, teach them diligently to your kids. You talk about them when you sit in your house. Talk about them when you walk by the way. Talk about them when you lie down. But when you put those kids to bed, you have the privilege and responsibility to pray with them and pray over them. You, you look for opportunities where you can talk to them about the things of God and what God has done in your life. And the family restored is a family that lovingly follows after God first and foremost and talks about him in their midst. That's what he's saying here. You shall teach them diligently to your children. When, when, when you sit in your house or when you have time, say, Gary, I'd like to sit in my house. I'm not in my house long enough to sit. It says when you're there, when they're in your presence, maybe your house is your, your SUV right now transporting kids everywhere. But the point that is being made in the great Shema is speak openly and continuously about your God. That's the point. When you sit down, when you rise up, when you go to bed, when you lie down, you, you speak openly of God. Bind these things on your hands. Put them as frontless between your eyes. Write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. The Orthodox Jews take this so literally that, that, that they have phylacteries. They have, if you see the Orthodox Jews, the guys with the long beards and the long black and coats, etc., who are at the Wailing Wall going back and forth, back and forth, they have phylacteries that contains a copy of either the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, or, or this, just the Ten Commandments. They'll have them wrapped around their hand. They'll, they'll have a mazula, uh, what's it called, a mazula on the, on the door of their house when they walk in because they're taking the great Shema literally. 
The point of it is, always be talking about the things that God has done. Speak openly about your God. Speak openly with your family about what's happening. The point of it is, God said, the truth about who I am is to be passed down through the generations within the family. Don't miss it. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Generational faithfulness. You teaching your sons and daughters, modeling to your sons and daughters the things that God is about. You initiate prayer at bedtimes. You initiate prayer over meals. You, you, you pray with your wife, guys, when you go to bed at night. You take her hand. Some of you just need to do that tonight. You, you don't do it at all. Thank God for today and pray for the next day. Simple things. Speaking openly, publicly, not embarrassingly, not obnoxiously about your God. And by the way, this is a team effort. Bev and I, when our kids were home, we tag-teamed on this. Many times she would lead, sometimes I would lead, many times I would lead, sometimes she would lead. It didn't matter. We wanted to make sure that this was pulsing to our kids their whole life. But don't make a mistake. Children are more likely to do what we do than to do what we say. Let me repeat that. The next generation is more likely to do what we do than to do what we say. And so train up a child in the way you should go, as Proverbs says, but make sure what? You go that way first. Train up a child in the way you should go, but you model that way. You go that way. You be an example of that. You be an example of how that can happen. You remember my story. I've used it a few times before. After the christening of their baby brother, the family was headed back home after the celebration, the great event, and they had dinner together as a family with the extended family. And in the back seat was their four-year-old son who was crying and crying and said, son, why are you crying? This is a great celebration. We've been with the family all day. He said, because at, 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 our, at my brother's baptism or christening, uh, the pastor said he wanted us to grow up in a good Christian family, but I want to keep living with you guys. Touche, right? I better stab that mom and dad's heart. What are you modeling to the next generation? Our, our house was filled with family this week, as you can imagine. We had uh, 21 people spending the night at our house for, for two or three nights, and it, it, was, it was bittersweet for us. We had a ball laughing and crying together. We put a circle together and just shared memories of my mom. And, and so we laughed and we cried. And uh, Ivor was the youngest of my grandkids. We've got six grandkids. He's the youngest. He just turned two. And, and I, I was there, and I watched Ivor get up, and he walked over, and he grabbed an iPad, and he sat down, and he does that, and then he hits this, and all of a sudden, the movie pops on. Two years old. Now, I'm not a grandparent that thinks all my, my grandkids are child prodigies. They're not. They're a mess. I'm going to tell you that. I mean, they, they're a mess. We, uh, I could tell you story after story. I mean... They're, they're not the most brilliant. They're, they're, they're great kids. They're average kids. They're good kids. They're, they're good kids. And uh, they're, they're a me- I mean, our house, you could smell our house before you got to our house last week. I mean, so many diapers and poop all over the place. It was like, but anyway, that's a whole other story. But where was I going with this? Stream of consciousness. You should not go there. We're talking about Ivor. That's what we're talking about. Ivor goes there and he gets that iPad, two years old, does this, hits a thing, movie pops on. How'd he learn that? How'd he learn that? 
Well, sometime a little later, I watched his five-year-old brother. I guess it was his five-year-old brother. He, he got that same iPad. They share it, and he goes there, and he does that, and he does that, and it pops on. And no sooner that happened, I watched my son. He grabbed his phone. He sat next to his son's on the couch. He does that. Got a bunch of text messages here. He, he, do, he does that, and uh, he does that, and he starts reading his stuff. Where, where does my two-year-old and five-year-old grandson get that? Well, first of all, they're more technologically savvy than I am at age 62, probably. But they get it because they watch. They watch every move you make. Those little eyes are on you. Kids are more apt to do what you do than to do what you say. And so the way to restore the family is to model to the next generation what you want reproduced. Let me put it this way. Men, if you treat your wife unkindly and you speak back to her and you are rude and mean to her, you're raising a son who's going to do that to his wife and a daughter who's going to expect that from her husband. And ladies, if, if you disrespect your husband and you nag at him and you shout at him and you're angry with him all the time, you're raising a daughter who's going to do that to her husband and you're raising a son who's going to be emasculated like your husband is, but he's going to marry a woman just like that. And none of us want to be that person. And so he says, you go and you teach and you model that before them. We need to be like Joshua. Joshua said this. He said, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. And at the end of it, let's read from that last period, the last two lines, uh, read, read aloud way. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, some of you have that on plaques in your homes. You've got all kinds of things. You've got, you've got more things in your house that, that say that. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But let me encourage you not to just make that a statement on the wall or on some little plaque on your desk, but make sure you live your life that way. Amen? I mean, we, we want to model the way. We want to go the way. We want to be examples of that to the next generation. The way to restore the family is through generational faithfulness, and generational faithfulness comes as we teach and as we model. Now, Psalm 128 you have in your hands. In Psalm 128, it's called a Psalm of Ascent. You know why it's called a Psalm of Ascent? Because when you go to Jerusalem, you literally ascend. In fact, in the bulletin, it says, Bev and I are leading a tour next year. If you want to come, there's uh, information on when to join us for a meeting to find out about it. It's a psalm of ascent. You see that? It's in the superscription right above, right below the number in your Bible before the first verse. It says, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in the way. When you eat the fruit of your hands, you will be happy. It will be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your home. Your children like olive plants around your table. It's a description of prosperity, of God blessing you, not financial prosperity necessarily, but the prosperity of the good life. And so then look at verse six. Indeed, may you see your children's children peace be upon Israel. Once again, we see generational impact. Your children's children, that's the next generation after you and your grandkids as well. And so what we see throughout the Old Testament time and time again is that the nation of Israel was to restore the family and the truth about God would be taught within the family. That's how the family would be restored. It was shattered. It fell just like everything else, but it's built back together through generational faithfulness. As I was doing mom's funeral on Monday, we had a great celebration here and uh, bittersweet. We shed tears as well. Still doing that. But I thought about, I mean, here I am studying this about the family and I'm also preaching my mom, her body right here where this table is. And, and my mind began to wonder as uh, we were singing a song, how grateful I am 
for the generational faithfulness within my family. See, I've got memories of my grandpa on my mom's side. You've heard me talk about him before. He was a big hulking man. He was six foot three, about 220 pounds, a woodsman and farmer, strongest man in the world in my eyes as a little kid growing up. Just a hulk of a man. And I've got two childhood memories when we'd go visit them, two childhood memories from the morning time. The, the first was when you awoke, you smelled something. And what you smelled was my grandma making homemade biscuits and frying bacon. And I'm going to tell you that's the greatest smell in the whole world. Oh my gosh, as a little short, fat, bald, chubby kid, I couldn't wait to get out of bed. I couldn't wait to get out of bed and run to that table. And when we ran to that table back there, I've got my second childhood memory, my godly grandpa. My grandpa had a third grade education. He had a big farm, he was successful, but he had a third grade education. He had a third grade education because his dad was also a woodsman and a farmer. He had people working for him. One day he had to fire one of the men working for him. The next day that man came back and poisoned the camp water. So my grandpa's dad, my great-grandfather, and my grandpa's oldest brother were murdered by this man and poisoned by this man. They died. My grandpa's in third grade. He was able to finish third grade, but then he had to quit and start working in the fields. My second memory of my grandpa, third grade education. Sitting on that back porch, grandma's getting the biscuits and bacon ready. Grandpa has a big, floppy, black-binded King James Bible in his lap. Big old man. Third grade education. I've got a master's degree from Dallas Seminary. I can read Greek and Hebrew, and I can't read the King James Version of the Bible. (laughs) But here was my grandpa reading God's Word every morning before he went out in the fields to work. And that's why to the next generation, my mama... She met Christ. I told the story at her funeral. When she was 13, she walked the aisle, she says. She gave us her testimony many times, but just in the last two weeks, I said, Mom, remind me. I mean, you're headed to glory. Mama, remind me. She said, I walked the aisle at age 13. I waited. I was saved before that, but I walked the aisle because at our church in the country where she was, a little small church in central Louisiana, when you walk the aisle, you got baptized pretty quickly after that. My mom hates the water. She's scared to death of the water. And she said, I didn't want to get baptized in that murky, muddy bayou, so I waited until I was 13 to walk the aisle. And uh, it, it, she, she saw her dad, and I saw my mom. I was a five-year-old kid on my knees at my bed with my mama accepting Christ. Generational faithfulness. Generational faithfulness. And it's a blessing to see. Some of you don't have that. Some of you are first-generation believers in your family. You didn't have a mom or dad who knew Christ or grandparents that knew Christ. You're first-generation. I want to encourage you. How many of you are first-generation believers out there? You're the, you're the first. Raise them high. Keep them high. Look at this. Man, a bunch of you. To God be the glory, great things he's doing. You can start. You have started. And you can continue generational faithfulness in your family. One day, somebody may say about you what I just said about my grandparents. My grandma's a strong believer as well, that that's where it started right there. With you that just raised your hand. What a blessing. So when I look at what's happening here, I see generational faithfulness. But there's a problem. The problem is this, something happened. By the way, Bev and I started praying for generational faithfulness in our family a long time ago. She's the first one in her generation. Her parents came to know Christ real late in life, in their 70s. So really, our generation started that. We had been saved a long time. And so we've been praying for that in both of our families. 
And we've been praying that. I've been praying that since then for you as well. I pray for the flock at TBC every day. We're part of the family. You're going to see that in a second. And I pray for generational faithfulness. Why don't you begin to pray for that in your family? That God would produce within your family generational faithfulness. But there's a problem. Generational unfaithfulness. And a lot of places I go in the scripture to show it to you, but I'm going to go to Judges chapter 2. I've done this numerous times in the past as well. But before I go to Judges 2, I want to set it up for you. In the book of Judges, it begins right after. It begins with Joshua and those of his generation dying. And we're going to see that in a second. It says a generation died, a generation went to their fathers. Now, I want to remind you that Moses led the nation of Israel out of Egypt through the parted Red Sea to the verge of the promised land, and Moses had to stop. General Joshua took over from Moses. He received the mantle of leadership. He received the baton of blessing. He became the leader of Israel. And Joshua's job was to lead the nation of Israel through the parted Jordan River and into the promised land and conquer all the ites that were there, the Ammonites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hittites, et cetera, et cetera. And when Joshua and his family began, or Joshua and his generation begin to die, we read about that in Judges chapter two. So that's the setup. Think about what Joshua and his generation experienced. Think about what they could have taught their kids. I mean, Joshua and his generation, all those men could have said, hey, hey boys, hey, 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 little Levi, let me tell you what dad did. Dad got to walk around the walls of Jericho and they came tumbling down one day and, and, and we were a bunch of slaves, but we went in and, and we saw all these things happening and mom could have come and said, hey, little Elizabeth, let me, let me tell you what happened. When, when we were going to the promised land, God parted the Jordan River and we walked right through the Jordan River. You're not going to believe what happened. They had all these tremendous things that happened. But here's the commentary on that generation, Judges chapter 2. And all that generation were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them. That's their sons and daughters who did not know the Lord or the work that the Lord had done in Israel. And so those sons and daughters of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them and provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served these false gods. They did not know the Lord or the work he had done. If you were to look at my Bible, Judges chapter 2, verse 11, you would see on the side of it, it says, saddest verse in the scriptures. How could they not do that? How can you walk around the walls of Jericho, see them come tumbling down and not tell your kids about it? How can you walk through a parted river and not say anything to your daughters about it? How can you watch city after fortified city come tumbling down and you beat them and you know it's not on your strength, you're a bunch of slaves, and yet you conquer the promised land? How could you not tell your kids what they did is they sacrificed the eternal on the altar of the temporal? You see, we're the same way. We're, we're fighting Canaanites. We're planting vineyards. We're building houses. That's what they had to do. I mean, they're into the land. We, we've got all this stuff, all this temporal stuff we have to do. And sometimes we sacrifice the eternal on the altar, the temporal. And if we're going to restore the family, we've got to flip that. We've got to make sure that the eternal trumps the temporal in our homes. We've got to make sure that speaking about eternal trumps everything. We need to be those who, who talk, who teach, who model, who speak. And that's how the family's restored. I've got to deal with every guy in here. What's my deal, guys? You pass away. I go to interview your family. They don't know your story, your testimony. When you came, what am I doing to you guys? 
Yeah, thump you on your dead head. If you're visiting today, you may not want to stick around at TBC. I go to interview your wife and your kids, and they don't know your salvation story. Shame on you. And ladies, same thing for you. Three times now, I have thumped dead heads. I've done it before God and the whole world. I've walked up to caskets and funeral homes. I don't do it in church. Not that it matters. Why didn't you tell them your story? I, I, go, I mean, the greatest comfort you can give your kids, your spouse, is they know your story and they see it lived out. So, so here, let me encourage you to do this. I mean, if you haven't done that, would you do that? So, well, you know, me and Gary, I, I'm not Italian like you. We're not free as a family and can talk like you do and cry like you do. And... That's okay. Can you email? Really? Hey, guys, I was in church today. Pastor Gary said we need to share our story. I, I don't know when next time we're going to sit down and be together, but I want you to know if I get hit by a truck tomorrow... Jesus is my Savior. I love him. I honor him. This is when I met him. Have you done that? Have you done it? Every woman in here, every guy in here, every young person in here, can you imagine if you say, hey, Mom and Dad, I just want to send you an email today. And I want you to know what Christ means to me and who he is in my life and when I met him. Wow. We'd have more tears flowing in the streets of the cities that you're from than you've ever imagined. The problem is you see faithful un, you see generational unfaithfulness here because they sacrifice the temporal on the altar of the eternal. They went after these other gods. God established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, commanded our fathers to teach their generation. Here we go, generational faithfulness, that the next generation might know them, children yet to be unborn. He says, the fathers teach the children that the next generation might know them. Three generations mentioned in Psalm 78. I read this every time we do a baby dedication. That's what we're called to do. Generational unfaithfulness. We're blessed. Both of our kids came to know Christ. They married. They were not unequally yoked. They married uh, fellow believers who are growing in Christ. They're involved in churches. They're involved in small groups. Uh, they're leaders in their churches, and we're blessed with that. Um, and this is my verse on parenting. I have no greater joy than this to see my children walking in truth. We're blessed. God could metastasize this cancer I have and I can go to glory and I'm going to die a grateful man. I'm going to die a grateful man not only because of what he's done here, but primarily, honestly, through what he's done in our family. And I say to God be the glory of great things he's done because I know two things after observing families for 35 years of ministry. There are no guarantees. I've watched godly, faithful parents have prodigal sons and daughters. I've watched it. I've watched some of you love your kids well. I've watched where families have four kids, three of them walk with Christ, and one of them turns his back on Christ. There are no guarantees. The second thing, I cannot make my adult kids walk with Christ. can't do it. I can pray and model, pray and model, pray and model. That's it. There are no guarantees. So we live our lives openly, transparently before our kids so that they will see Jesus in us, and hopefully one day they'll be restored. This is a picture in our family, my favorite picture on my phone. Grayson Riggs, a year and a half ago, sitting in his dad's lap, trusted Christ as a savior. After he prays, my daughter's there with the phone, and Grayson goes, yes! And every time I see that picture, I may be driving along, and you're parked next to me at a red light. I pop that picture at my phone. I go, yes! 
thank you, Jesus. And I've got three more who aren't old enough to know Christ yet. And I'm praying every day for Emerson and for Case and for Ivor to come to know Christ as Savior. And for the three that know him, Hudson, Jackson, and Grayson, the three that know him, that they'll be godly men who walk with Christ all the days of life, strong, godly men. And God will protect them from the evils of this world. Every day I pray that. Well, Jim, fast forward to me to, let's go past that video. I'm not going to use it this hour. Because here's what I want to tell you. The divine design is restored as we live for Christ, but two other ways, through the home and through the church. Through the home and through the church. It's restored in the home when we obey passages like Ephesians chapter 6, where it says, children, obey your parents. The word obey does not mean argue, fight with, not listen to. It means what it says. It means to align oneself under. Actually, it says, or to listen, I'm sorry, to listen and do. That's the concept. And then it says, parents, do not provoke your children to anger. This is Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Do not provoke your children to anger, but raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so as parents, we're to lovingly care for our kids and nurture them in Christ. Right now it's planting season, so we planted a few flowers and planted a tree that somebody gave us in honor of my mama and or had it planted. And uh, I'm out fertilizing, I'm out watering, I'm out doing that. We want these things to bear fruit. That's what we do with our family too. So that's what godly parents do with their family. You, just like you, you pamper that plant, that flower, whatever, you, you fertilize, you weed, you water. That's what we do with our families. That's what godly men and women do. But the other way that the divine design restored is right here in the church. Right in the church. We're a family. Well, Gary, I mean, we're, we're a big family. We're a big family. We're a large family at TBC. But we're still family. By the way, there are a lot of metaphors that refer to the church. The church is a flock. The church is a body. The church is a lighthouse. Uh, the, church, the church is not like a family. The church is a family. You say, well, how do you get that, Pastor? Well, I get it from the scriptures. Jesus once teaches disciples how to pray. He says, when you pray, pray our Father. We all have the same Father. So if we all have the same Father, what does that make us? Brothers and sisters. And so we all have the same father. That makes us brothers and sisters. The church is not like a family. The church is a family. And in, in, in fact, it talks about we've been adopted into this family. In Romans chapter 8 or Galatians chapter 4 or Ephesians chapter 1, they all talk about adoption. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery uh, to, to fall back in the fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption of sons. We've all been adopted into this family. Nothing we did to earn it. God our Father chose us and he adopted us into his family. And so we've been adopted into God's family, the church. And so the church is not a metaphor. The church is an actuality. God is our father. Jesus is our elder brother, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. And we are brothers and sisters. And so the scriptures often talk about we're part of the household of God. I could pop up six passages that talk about this. Here's just one. I'm Ephesians 2, 19. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, the church is a family. Families are a hot mess. They are. The other thing I posted on Facebook was yesterday. I put a question. Your family, hot mess or loving tribe? Which is it? I get some great answers. I mean, go to my Facebook, take a look at my page. The best one was, our family is a hot mess that is a loving tribe. 
probably defines most of our family, describes most of our families. There are times when we're messy, but we're a loving tribe. That's what the church is. Hey, we're a mess. You know, all, all these words you sent to me, I pray the church is a place of love. I pray it's a place of sacrifice, a place of patience, a place of refuge, a, a place where there's, there's food. I, I love that. A place of joy. But we're also dysfunctional. We're also complicated. There's all times when there's strife. Sometimes it can be stressful. Sometimes it, it, it's dysfunctional. Sometimes there's drama. But what we're called to do is to be a family. And a healthy family reflects their father, the heavenly father. And so I ask you this question. Are you reflecting the father today? You're reflecting him? You know, when I look at our church family, and we are family, when I look at it, I, I often think about, I think about people. I think about you as individuals. I think about what God's done in your life. I see pictures. I see faces. And uh, I thought, who's an example in our body of someone where the church really absorbed them into the family and there's been great change? Well, I thought of dozens of you. I mean, this church has loved many of you to Jesus. This church has loved you in brokenness. This church has loved you when your children were born, when your moms and dad died, when your spouse went to glory. And uh, we're an imperfect people. I'm an imperfect pastor. We're an imperfect church. I, I need to ask you for forgiveness. There are times that I failed you. And, and so we recognize that we're just, we, we're just a family. And families aren't perfect. If your family's perfect, come talk to me. I'll prove you're not. But God can use the family to change us. So here's a story of one of my friends, dramatically changed and impacted by the church. We'll conclude with this. So we're doing our series, our series of My Go Day. We're moving to family being restored this week. And I've got with me my dear friend and brother in Christ, Dave McMurray. Uh, Dave, tell me a little about your background and your story and how TBC is related to that. Great. Our family started coming regularly to Temple Bible Church when I was about 11. Very thankful for a mother who made it a priority to get us into a Bible teaching church. My dad was not around in, during those years, and it was important to her that I would be around men that knew the Lord and loved God and uh, be in a healthy church environment, and so she made sure that we made that happen. I, I remember you as a young boy, then I remember you as a junior high kid, then I remember you as a senior high student, Temple Wildcat, playing football, mm -hmm. and uh, being involved in TBC through all those years. What are, mm -hmm. what are some of the things that God brought you through, and how do you mature you? How do you use a church to do that? It's a good question. Uh, one was, you know, just a single mom realizing she needed help, and, you know, to bring her kid into a community. Uh, one thing she tried to do that didn't seem great at first was she would actually schedule times for me to meet with men, and as a young teenager, uh, that bothered me. Um, it felt like these guys were trying to be some kind of replacement for my dad, and I think I resisted that early on. Um, but as, as God used the word, kind of just the word being taught consistently, uh, it began to wear me down uh, and make me more open to spiritual things. I think another important element was that I saw the reality 
of uh, a healthy spiritual life in people. So we're talking about this morning the church as a family and how when the church comes together, it's the ultimate family. It's a family that God puts together. Mm-hmm. And really, we're brothers and sisters because we have the same father mm-hmm. and because of what Christ has done in us and we've been restored. And so I watched you, then you went off to college, uh, didn't qualify to get an LSU, so you went to A&M, if I remember right. Yes. And, uh, Great sadness. But God did a work in your life. And as he was doing that work, um, we just saw the fruit that was being born and invited you to come back and be... Mm-hmm part of our staff team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so many so many pieces there. The The Lord used a lot of key people, used you, used youth leaders, used godly men in the church to show me what it looks like to walk with Jesus. Got excited about the idea of uh, then training to be a Bible teacher and training to pastor other people well and to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And so uh, the church helped me pay for seminary, uh, helped me get into seminary. That was a great time. Learned a lot there. Ended up coming back again to Temple Bible Church and got to work with the children and family ministry, which was really exciting because of how the church had been spiritual family for me. That gave me a vision of then helping the church to be spiritual family for for kids uh, here in this community. So when we were looking at uh, planning a church in Colleen 10 years ago, 10 and a half years ago now, Mm -hmm. uh, we just began to pray, who's the right man? Who's the right man that should take the leadership role uh, should go and plant that church. We had a couple of hundred people almost uh, who were attending TBC from Colleen. And we looked around and said, uh, you're the perfect fit for that. I mean, by that time you had a wife, you had three kids, and uh, you had grown in Christ. And it was really encouragement to me and to the leadership here to see the work that God did in your life, taking you from uh, a young boy through the process of maturing all the way through high school, college, seminary days, being on staff, and then launching you into Grace Bible Church in Queen. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for the impact that the church has made. Mothers and fathers who had their own families, but took the time to reach out and encourage me, uh, someone who came from a broken family, who was looking for encouragement, who was looking for a godly influence. And so I'm very thankful. The church reaches people from multiple different directions, and I think that's a really beautiful thing. God did a work in Dave's life. He did a work in Dave's family. He pastors Colleen Grace Bible Church in Colleen, 600 plus folks worshiping right now. And we say to God be the glory. The church came alongside, filled in some gaps. And uh, now you see a man who walks with Christ, honors Christ. Sit in this room with you, a lot of folks like that coming out of brokenness. And the church comes alongside and loves us and cares for us. And Jesus picks us up through our brothers and sisters and moves us along to his glory. Amen. Father, we thank you for Imago Day, the image of God and man. We thank you for these 10 weeks. We thank you for teaching us. We thank you for allowing us to see you in a little different light. We thank you for restoring us, even though we've been shattered. Thank you that we're not destroyed. This morning for some of you, for some of you right now, the morning of confession, You know, either as a husband or a wife or as a son or a daughter, as a mother or dad, um, this message for you is one of you need to begin the path of modeling generational faithfulness. You haven't done that. It's not been true of you. You haven't led your family. You've devoted your time to the temporal. You've been fighting Canaanites, building houses, planting fields. Would you make this morning a morning confession right now? 
to say, Lord, I, I've sacrificed the eternal on the altar of the temporal. And would you ask God to restore your family? Would you ask him to restore you, first of all, to a walk with him? And then to restore your family? And some of us may need to go back and apologize or seek forgiveness because we misstepped in the past, but we don't want that in the present or future. Others of us are filled with bitterness right now. You came from families with maybe an alcoholic mom or dad or an absentee or abusive mom or dad or one who just was silent. And you've grown up feeling like you missed, missed out. And you've held on to bitterness and anger. Would you release that at the foot of the cross this morning? Would you just say, Lord, I, I, I don't like it. I don't like where I came from, what happened, but I know you're going to use it to your glory. And so I accept it even though I may not like it. And for others of us, we're part of a process. You may be third generation like I am. Maybe longer than that, maybe shorter. We have a whole lot to be thankful for. Godly mamas, godly daddies, godly grandparents, great-grandparents. And you've taken the baton and you're running well. Would you just thank God for that? And ask him to keep you on course so that generations to come, children yet to be born, will know the works of God and who he is. Father, thank you for teaching us all these weeks. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. See you next week.